0: Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Lord Jesus, we are creatures of the word. It is uh, when your word took on flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus uh, that the... uh, salvation you predetermined before foundation was accomplished, secured for those who had hope in you. And now, as your Holy Spirit indwells this word for us today, we submit ourselves to it every week, for we always need help. We always need what we see today, a light to those who are lost. So we pray that we see Christ as he is presented in his word, and we respond in ways that the Holy Spirit lead us to so that we might see and savor our salvation in Jesus. We pray all of this in your name, amen. So the new sermon series I'm talking about, it's going to kind of interrupt two temple scenes in the gospel of Luke, which is what we've been going through. Come February, we're going to return and Jesus is going to be a young boy uh, in the narrative and it's going to kind of launch this sequence where Luke is showing us the preparation of Jesus and John the Baptist for their ministries. But today, uh, we encounter the infant Jesus in the temple as Luke concludes the birth narrative of his book. And we'll talk a little bit more about the significance of this in a moment, but the context of what Stephen just read for us, the events of today's text, is Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus to the temple to present him to the Lord, which is what any good Jewish family would do with their firstborn son. And I'm sure that when they did this, the priest, who they work in the temple, eventually took Jesus and said a prayer for him, offered a sacrifice for him, and dedicated him to the Lord. But if you'll notice in what we just read, we don't hear of any priests. We don't hear of any of these typical things that would accompany a presentation of a child to the Lord. And that's not because Jesus wasn't presented to the Lord. I'm sure all of those things happened. In fact, I know all of those things happened, but... And in a wonderful twist of events, this story isn't about the child Jesus being presented to the Lord. This story is actually about Jesus the Lord being presented to his people. And what we encounter today is the presentation of what all of God's faithful followers in that day were waiting for. Something which in a character we'll meet today whose name is Simeon dwelt in his heart as the hope of the consolation of Israel. When we think of the word consolation, we think of consolation prizes and participation trophies. It's actually this missing out. And we get some sort of trinket to kind of placate our disappointment, maybe occupy us for a little bit and make us feel better, even though we know it's not going to last. And it didn't really accomplish anything. But here, the consolation of Israel is the grand prize. It is the hope for those who need consoled. Who feel the burden of brokenness, the weariness of waiting, and the sorrow of spending all of your energy and all of your dreams trying to secure a joy and a peace that always seems to be a fingertip away, no matter how hard you reach. For those who wonder who Jesus is, today the Lord is going to be presented to you in theological perspective Today we see Jesus as presented as one who consoles those who need motivation for obedience, for worship, and for worship. Life is hard. We are two days into a new year, and it's already hard. We don't need to be reminded of that. But in the person of Jesus Christ, those who are weary and burdened, those who find the tedious nature of life to be difficult, here is joy which gives us peace in the moment and draws us forward in new hope. For those who feel enamored and captivated by all the glamour of the world, here is the incredible joy and beauty of Jesus which renders everything else ordinary in light of who he is and what he's come to do. And today, Luke is going to present to us four aspects of Jesus which give us hope as followers of Jesus. If you're not one who believes in Jesus, this story gives you four pictures of who it is you come to when you come to Jesus. And so these are the four things we'll note today. First, we're going to see that Jesus makes obedience possible. Then, in Simeon's song, we're going to see that Jesus makes salvation visible. In verses 33 and 35, we're going to see that Jesus divides our hearts. And lastly, in looking at the story of Anna and Simeon, we see that Jesus fulfills our lives. So we're going to begin today by looking at the first portion of our passage, which is Luke 2:22 through 24. And when the time came for their purification, that's Mary and Joseph and Jesus, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called to the Lord, shall be called holy to the Lord, and offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So it might actually just seem like a lot of context for us as we read this, setting the scene is actually of deep theological significance for us, significance for you, And what we see first is that Mary and Joseph were actually in poverty. Many of us might think that if we follow Jesus, riches and comfort will follow us. But here we have Mary, who just gave birth to Christ the Lord, born of God and of woman. Mary, who the angel Gabriel already appeared and said, Oh, favored one on whom God's favor has shown. She finds herself under what I call the poverty clause of the Old Testament. You see, how much you make and how comfortable your worldly amenities are, are of no significance of your standing before the Lord. To have riches and worldly comfort does not mean that one has Jesus. And to have Jesus does not mean that you'll have riches and worldly comfort. Pleasure and provision come from proximity to Jesus, not the rewards of this world. And this is seen, as I said, in what is here called this poverty clause. And this clause is mentioned here uh, in Luke two in verse twenty four when he, they, he said they went to go offer um, a turtle dove and a pigeon. And part of what Mary and Joseph were waiting on at this time, what we see in Luke two twenty two, was for the end of their purification. And this purification was something that the Old Testament law prescribed. And after a male child was born, the baby and the mother had to wait 33 days before they went back to the temple. And after that 33 days, Moses tells us what comes next in Leviticus 12, verses 6 through 8. And when the days of her purification are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, She shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her own blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, so here's the poverty clause, then she shall take two turtle doves, or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. So in order to complete the dedication of the child and to consummate this purification process, a sacrifice was made for atonement. Now understand this, we actually have to understand the nature of our sin. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3 and the the curse of sin fell on humanity, part of the woman's curse was childbirth. And so the blood and the hard work of labor actually kind of baptized everyone who is born in this marking of sin, in the weight of belonging to a fallen humanity. And it's not because sex and childbirth is sinful, but because of the effects of sin on our soul, every human ever born by woman is born sinful, born through blood, born through pain, born into brokenness. So knowing that we by nature are born into sin, God made a way forward to atone even from birth for our sins. God made a way forward. And that was this sacrifice which cleansed the mother and child. And as we saw, generally this sacrifice was a spotless lamb a year old and a turtle dove or a pigeon. But for those who couldn't afford a lamb, God made another provision. They could offer two turtle doves and two pigeons, two very cheap and accessible animals. And they could, by that same offering, receive the exact same atonement, the exact same forgiveness as those who are able to offer the full lamb. Mary and Joseph went to the temple to offer sacrifices under this poverty clause. That's what Luke says. They didn't go to offer a lamb, they went to go offer a turtle dove and a pigeon because they, Mary and Joseph, could not afford a lamb. And what's important for us to see here, even in the Old Testament law, is that God made a way for those who didn't have enough to still have access to atonement. Sometimes we have this wrong understanding of the Old Testament, where in the Old Testament we encounter this angry God who only demands our works. But here we see that God was already going to those who didn't have enough and saying, I will provide. I will meet you where you are and I will give you what you need to obey. Where one would desire to come to the Lord for purification. If you are one who looks at your life and you see a total absence of what looks like anything that would qualify you to have fellowship with this God, here we see that even from day one, God is committed to taking those who come to him and to giving them what they need to be brought into his fellowship, into the promise of his people. But not only do we see Mary and Joseph's poverty here, but we also see their obedience to that Old Testament law and Jesus' participation in that law. And what shouldn't be missed on us is as we're reading through the book of Luke, this is the first time Luke, the historian, actually explicitly cites Old Testament scriptures Now, Luke has alluded to many Old Testament scriptures a lot, but one thing Luke doesn't do that other writers like Matthew or Mark do, they do it really abruptly and they say, this happened in order to fulfill the words of the prophet. Luke doesn't do that. He's more subtle. He like softly quotes the prophets without explicitly quoting it. And what we've seen is we've seen wonderful prophecies from Micah and from Malachi and from Isaiah of the Lord's prophet coming, the Lord's Messiah, born of a virgin from Bethlehem. All of these great glorious promises that we could pull out, the best tracks of the Old Testament. And yet the thing that Luke explicitly wants to draw our attention to are quotations from the things that we sometimes wrestle the most to read in the Old Testament law. That is one quotation from Leviticus 12, which we just saw in another quotation from the book of Exodus. And this is so important here for our understanding of what Jesus does in relationship to his obedience and our salvation. Jesus, who was already God in the flesh, the eternal second person of the Trinity, did not need to be subjected to the law. He was by nature who he always was. Holy, clean, perfect, radiant, sinless. But as his parents obeyed the law in bringing Jesus to the temple, Jesus was placed under the law, not for his sake, but for ours, for all of us who are not born of a virgin of God and woman but of man and woman who find ourselves under the brokenness and the burden of the law. Jesus subjected himself to it, even as an infant, so that he might redeem those who suffered under it. We see in the book of Luke that one of Jesus' primary roles as we continue to work through this as the Messiah is to offer perfect obedience to the law where no Israelite could not the priest of that day, not the high priest, not King David, not the prophet Elijah, but here Jesus was going to perfectly obey the law and he placed himself under the full obedience of it. The problem which stains every child born of man, my problem, your problem, I was born into the church in a Christian family, you might be born outside of a Christian family, each of us suffer from the same problem of disobedience to the law not worshiping Jesus as we ought, and we stand under the condemnation of death because of our cosmic treason against the God who is king. But here, Jesus, born of God and man, began the plan of perfect obedience to ransom those who sat under judgment of their own sin, to save lawbreakers by becoming the one who obeyed the law perfectly. Why is this of significance for us today? Because it's by Jesus' perfect obedience that his parents' substitute poverty offering would even be acceptable to the Lord. The author of Hebrews tells us that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats and turtle doves to remove our sins and make atonement. Namely, they didn't rebel against God. We did. Which means... The only reason that someone who goes and offers what they can afford in a full lamb could receive atonement, or the only reason those who can't offer a full lamb and has to go with measly doves and pigeons can get atonement, is because the blood of those bulls and goats and pigeons were a placeholder for the ultimate sacrificial lamb who is Jesus Christ. Here's the astounding picture in this text right here. As Mary and Joseph rejoiced in that God had made a provision for them to enter back into fellowship with him, they had no idea that the reason they were able to offer a lesser sacrifice and still be accepted was because Mary had just given birth to the greatest sacrifice, Jesus Christ, and that he was going to be the final atonement that worked backwards to all the sacrifices in the Old Testament, taking lambs and pigeons and making them as blameless as himself and looks forward to all of us who come to Jesus in grace as our sacrifice. You see, just as the law, as Paul says, weakened as it was, tried to give God's people what they needed to obey, Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law, gives all who come to him the power they need to obey God in the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus upheld the law of God perfectly, he paid the impossible price for your disobedience. No man can ransom himself from the wages of our sin. You can't obey enough, you can't give enough, you can't sacrifice enough, you can't sing enough, you can't pray enough, you can't read your Bible enough. It is an impossible price for you. But Jesus paid that impossible price so that obedience might be possible for all who accept Jesus's provision. The call to Jesus is a call to be saved from the work of the flesh and set towards obedience in the spirit. And here we see that even when it seemed difficult, Jesus gives us exactly what we need to obey by being the provision we need to obey God. And you can imagine the debate Mary and Joseph might have had about this presentation process. Uh, Christmas and the holidays just ended. And if you have kids You subjected yourself to the torture of packing up your kids in snowy gear and driving from house to house. And you realize that one of the most depressing things you'll ever see is getting to heaven and seeing how much time is spent putting children into vehicles. And that's how much of your life is spent on that process. It's burdensome. It's taxing. But let us remember that Mary and Joseph did not live in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. For them to go to Jerusalem, they had to go up to Jerusalem. They had to travel in an age without Honda Odysseys and sliding doors and tablets to entertain their children. It was costly for them to do this. And you can imagine Joseph, who had an angel appear to him and tell him what is going on, why this child is not his child, but why he should still see himself as the father. This was a child born of God the Father and Mary. And Joseph thought that was weird, and the angel said it is weird. But this is God's promise, So Mary knew the distinction of Jesus. Joseph knew the distinction of Jesus. And you can imagine that Joseph came to Mary and he said, hey, Mary, isn't this kid already the Messiah? Doesn't his name mean God with us? Isn't he the son of God? Do we really have to go to Jerusalem? Doesn't he already get his gold star? Isn't he already distinct enough? And don't we always find excuses to not obey? But here, they submitted themselves, knowing all of the uniqueness of Jesus, and they chose to obey. And they not only began Jesus's substitutionary obedience, they not only themselves received the Lord's provision for Mary to have fellowship with the Lord's people, but what we see in this text is their obedience resulted in amazing praise and encouragement to others, As we'll see in a little bit, it just so happened. Our name is Sovereign Hope Church, and we like that idea of sovereign because it means that there are no just so happens. God is sovereign over everything. And when it just so happened that on the day Mary and Joseph ended their purification and brought Jesus to the temple, that Simeon just happened to be going up that day. And as Simeon swept up Jesus in his arms, it just so happened that Anna also came into the the temple that day. It just so happened because God has so planned to use our obedience, which we might not have clarity on, that we might make excuses for, that we might feel confused with, that we never know how God is going to use our obedience to stir others in worship and to help ourselves see the beauty of Jesus. And in the light of this corporate encouragement, now let's turn to one of those fruits in the story of Simeon. And here we see our second point this morning, that Jesus makes salvation visible. Read with me verses 25 through 32. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So in this passage, we've seen, as Luke has consistently done, this theme of inversion. If you're reading closely, you might assume that Simeon was a priest. But unlike Zechariah in Luke 1, he's not called a priest. He's simply a man in Jerusalem. We would think that it would be one of these priests, anxiously, devoutly, righteously waiting For God's Messiah, who would so clearly see when the Lord's Messiah came in because of his religious background that this is the Christ and hold him up and praise him and sing this wonderful, glorious song. Yet it was not a priest. In fact, we read nothing of the priests in this passage. It was just faithful Simeon. And yet we see the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit in this text to lead men to Jesus. Simeon was righteous, And devout, waiting eagerly for the Lord to lift the hopes of Israel. But more than that, he did all of this filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if any of you in here are Christian, if you have repented and come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have immediately and abidingly been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. There's no lag in the Holy Spirit filling believers. But prior to this time, prior to Pentecost, The Holy Spirit only abided and came upon people when they were commissioned by God for a specific task. In the Old Testament, we read of Samson, the Holy Spirit came upon him and he slayed the Philistines who were oppressing the Israelites. The Holy Spirit dwelt on the prophet Elijah when he called down fire from heaven and consumed and, and dominated the altars of Baal. The Holy Spirit carried men in the Old Testament to great places to do great things. But did you notice the gift the Holy Spirit gave Simeon in this text? He didn't give him the gift of throwing fire, the gift of strength, the gift of prophecy, the gift of super speed. His gift was the gift of waiting. Waiting the Holy Spirit was dwelling in him with eager anticipation because it had been told to him that he would not die before he sees the Lord's Christ. And so he waited. Every day he would go to the temple knowing that the Lord would work in the midst of his people. And every day he went in there and he climbed those steps and he looked around. He saw nothing. Then he'd leave. And the next day he'd go back and he'd look around and he'd see nothing. And day after day after day after day. You'd have to imagine this would have an emotional effect on Simeon and yet one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is that though we weary, we do not lose hope. And he kept going and he kept believing. And one day, He was led by this Holy Spirit into the temple and he saw what every other person and all of the priests that day saw in the temple, an impoverished couple ordinarily presenting their firstborn to the Lord. But he saw it with the eyes of the Holy Spirit when no one else did. This is how anyone who sees Jesus with saving eyes sees him. With the eyes of our flesh, without the help of the Holy Spirit, our eyes see, each and every one of us, when we look at Jesus, exactly what the world sees. Something where we get to decide what he looks like by observing him. But when the Holy Spirit works on our dead hearts, he gives us eyes to see what in our sin we never could. Carnal eyes, human eyes do not see, but eyes opened by the Holy Spirit of the Lord. Behold the spiritual realities of our redemption. To see Jesus like Simeon sees Jesus, which is to see Jesus as the Lord's Messiah, is to see something miraculous. It's to see something that only God can do when he opens your eyes to see this. For those of us who want consolation, for those of us who feel the pain of waiting, of brokenness, of the failings of our flesh, the Holy Spirit has come to console us. And we love that idea. But how does the Holy Spirit console us? How does he comfort us? How does he enter into our weariness and our weaknesses? By consoling us straight to Jesus. By showing us the signature center of God's love for you. And as the Holy Spirit revealed Jesus to Simeon, he broke forth in song, verses 29 through 32. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel here we see in wonderful Trinitarian perspective how the Holy Spirit reveals to Simeon Jesus and the way in which Jesus reveals to us the Father's salvation. John says this in John 1:18, speaking of Jesus, no one has ever seen God. The only God, who's Jesus Christ mentioned in verse 17, who's at the Father's side has made him known. The only place we could see God the Father is through God the Son. Most of us, most of your neighbors, have a desire to see God or whatever they might define in their lives as God. The turn of the century marked this kind of statistical category called the rise of the nuns, which sounds like a really weird Catholic Star Wars crossover, but it's not the rise of the N-U-Ns. It's the rise of the N-O-N-E-S. In other words, it's those who, when asked on a religious survey which religion they belong to, would check None. But that trend is changing. In fact, in our modern era, we're seeing not a rise in atheism, but a rise in spiritualism. And part of that is because people are seeing things rightly, even if we're applying wrong solutions. We've seen the end of humanism. Where we thought there was this progressive hope and the world was getting better, we closed the bloodiest century in human history where Facebook and social media tools are promising to connect us to one another, they're increasingly dividing. They're not bringing charity, but hostility. The end of humanism is dark and lonely. The world in and of itself does not satisfy. It cannot save, and it will not relent. Therefore, to medicate this emptiness of true reality, people are turning to something spiritual, a cocktail of love, good vibes, and positive energy that sustains all things. This turn is motivated by nothing less than a desire for salvation. But there is no salvation apart from turning to Jesus Christ. We will never see salvation. We will never see the goodness of the loving Father until we see salvation where he has placed it, which is in his Son, that is revealed to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is the great news in this text. Remember what we saw last week with the shepherds in verse 10. Well, the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This savior is good news for all people. It is good news for those who realize their need, who see the empty realities of this world. But it is good news that says, I am the answer and nothing else is. And what does it meant that it says for all people? Look at Luke 2, 31 and 32. Simeon sings that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So Simeon, in contrast to the priests that are there, in contrast to the religious officials we'll encounter time and time again in the book of Luke, Simeon knew his Old Testament better than any of them. What surprises and shocks the rest of the religious community seems like the seamless application of the Old Testament, according to Simeon. Simeon knew that God was going to bring the nations to Jesus, that this wasn't simply a savior for the Jews, but that the savior of the Jews would be the savior of the world. He knew, verses like Psalm 98, 2 through 3, where it says this, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Isaiah chapter two, verse two. Not only shall they see, but they shall come. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and the nations shall flow to it. And so Simeon sees this God who ransoms from all nations a people for himself. And he knows, thinking of his Jewish brothers and sisters, that in a pluralistic age, his fellow Jews were beginning to wonder if their God was really that glorious. All these other Greek gods and pagan gods had massive temples and fun utterances of worship. And here the Israelites do, worshiping a God at an empty temple in ordinary ways. But it's here that Simeon says Jesus Christ would remind you for those wondering that your God is indeed your glory, that there is no God like this God. But he also knew that for those who sat apart from God's promise, and maybe that's you today, to you who are searching, that this Messiah would be a light to the Gentiles, that it would reveal to you the way by which you might come and see God's mercy. Here is the consolation of salvation. All who come to God through Jesus Christ are saved. Apart from this light, there is no salvation. Apart from this light, there is no seeing the Father. Apart from this light, there is no consolation. But in it, for all who come to the Lord's Messiah, there is peace, salvation, light, and glory. And while this message might seem ordinary for us who hear the gospel preached so clearly for Mary and Joseph this was astounding. Luke says they marveled at it. Not only that their son was this Messiah, but that God was really serious about bringing all the nations into his promise through his son. And Simeon in concluding the song looked at the marveling eyes of Mary and Joseph. And Luke says he blessed them, which what seems kind of like an ominous blessing. We read of this blessing in verses 33 and 35. And his father and mother marveled about what was said about him. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Here we see the kind of salvation that Jesus brings. And this is our third point, that Jesus divides our hearts. My wife is recovering from shoulder surgery, and one of the blessings we had was knowing people in our church and outside the church who have had similar shoulder surgeries, and they tell Sarah what to expect in terms of post-surgery pain and rehab and setbacks. You see, preparation is always a blessing, even when it seems difficult. Preparation is always a consolation that comes and says, this is okay, and this is expected, even if it's not what we always want to hear. But here, as a result of his spirit-filled song of praise, Simeon tells Mary and Joseph and us today what to expect in following this Jesus. That in coming to this Christ, it will be a life of highs and lows. He will be a sign opposed for the fall of many, that's falling, and the rising of others. As we'll see in the book of Luke, Jesus was a polarizing figure. Many people flocked to Jesus, Many people hated Jesus. Many people loved to walk with Jesus until his teachings about his lordship and discipleship became uncomfortable for them, and then they walked away. Paul calls Jesus a stumbling block. And for many of us, it is the stumbling block which provokes our anger and hostility in our hearts. But for others, those who have eyes to see, he is the sweet step which carries us into the presence of the Lord. This is the polarizing effect that Jesus has in our world. And Simeon alludes to the pain that Mary would have as she watches her son die sacrificially, even for her sins. says so it would feel as if you're being pierced by a sword. Following Jesus is terribly uncomfortable if you're uncomfortable with Jesus. But the point of what Simeon says to Mary and Joseph is that all of this rising and falling, all of this piercing and tearing is actually meant to make you comfortable with your Messiah who loves you. He says the purpose of all this division is for the sake of clarity that the thoughts of your heart might be revealed. Now, I love how he connects those. We would think the thoughts of our mind because minds think. But don't we all know that what we think and what we feel are sometimes two different things? That we might confess that our heart is set on Jesus. But there might be times of trial, of sorrow, and of pain where our hearts think differently. But here we see that this division of Jesus is meant for you to see that and to know exactly what to do with that. And that means that any of us in this room might have this piercing pain For a number of perhaps three reasons. First is that you might not know Jesus as your Savior, and you might hear calls to submit to Him as your Lord, to repent, and to serve Him in worship and obedience, and that might strike you in the most painfully offensive way. It harms your pride, takes a stab at your worldly self worth, and it might seem like the most dangerous thing to do to come to this Savior. But this pain is for a purpose. You might be one who loves Jesus and submits to him and you might find yourself opposed by others because you are aligned with Jesus. But this pain is for a purpose. It is doing something. You may, like Mary, encounter deep pain and deep loss which feels like death itself. But this pain is for a purpose and it is doing something. It is better that our hearts be revealed in these moments so that we might know exactly what to do with our pain. That when our hearts are divided, we see so clearly the hope of the world so that we might run to the hope of Christ and cling to it. Consider the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians. Chapter one, verses eight through 10. For we want you not to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope, he will deliver us again. What I love about Paul's words is he doesn't say, he has delivered us, and that's the end. He says, he has delivered us, and he will deliver us again. As the rising and the falling of life in a broken world continues, the pain of this world draws our hearts to the peace of Jesus, to the safe refuge of a salvation revealed to all. If you want to see what is in your heart, gaze at Jesus. C.S. Lewis famously said that to look at Jesus as the Bible presents him is to see him either as a lunatic, as a liar, or as your Lord. He cannot be blasé. He cannot be blah. He divides. But the Somber reality is for those of us who see him as our Lord, as difficult as life is, as sincere as our view of reality might be, it is better to be with this Jesus, wrapped in his salvation, than to be robed in the riches of this world. And this is our final point this morning. Here we see that Jesus fulfills our lives. Look with me at Luke 2. Speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So here we encounter Anna, who was married at a young age, married for seven years, and then her husband died. And now she's 84 years old, widowed for most of her life. And in the midst of her pain and loneliness, she wasted nothing. But instead, she gave herself daily to going to the Lord's temple, of fasting and praying for her brothers and sisters, And what hope is there in Anna's example to those who are single, to those who are perhaps riddled with pain or a sickness that might feel like your purpose has been taken away from you. Here is someone who wastes not her lack, but sees that she has purpose in serving and fasting and praying and worshiping the Lord. And while she puts herself to this task, it just so happened that she walked into that temple On that day, in that moment, when Simeon took up the Lord Jesus Christ and praised him, and Anna as well, with the full power of the Holy Spirit working inside of her, was stirred to worship anew, to worship stronger, to worship not in undefined fasting and prayers, but as the culmination of all of her hope and all of her fasting and all of her worship, she now proclaimed Jesus to all of those who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. You see, the joy of the birth of Jesus moved Anna to go towards those who were also waiting, also longing for consolation, and to share with them the good news that salvation has come. You see, the gathering of the Lord's people is a gift that sustains our cycle of both sighing and singing. Anna came to those who were sighing under the weight of life, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And having seen Jesus, she began to sing to them, giving thanks that God had brought salvation. There will be times where you have the joy of singing the gospel into the size of those in this church. And then there will also be times where it's your size that need the song of those Who see Jesus clearly and want to invite you into that good news. More so, look back at Simeon's response to seeing Jesus in Luke 2, verse 29. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Reading Simeon's words there, we might assume that Simeon is old. And that might be true. But what's interesting is Luke likes pointing out old people. Right, he'd find the section in here while old people gather. He'd be like, you guys are the old people. You're well advanced in years, right? Zachariah, old and advanced in years. Elizabeth, old and advanced in years. Anna here, she's 84, at least 84 years old. Old and advanced in years. There's no mention of Simeon's age. But what is mentioned is that when he saw the salvation of the Lord in Jesus Christ, nothing else mattered to him. He had peace. So much so that he was willing to die right then and there. Here's the remarkable thing. He didn't need to see the end of the story. He didn't need to see all of his problems solved. He didn't need to see Jesus' perfect, perfect obedience. He didn't need to witness water turned to wine or a cross turned to an empty tomb or resurrected hands pierced with iron nails. He knew when he saw Jesus for the first time, the game was over, that salvation had come that all of the weight and the anxiety and the waiting and the anticipation was finally solved exhaustively, even though he didn't see the end. There was no longer any doubt, and the colors of the world began to fade as the hue of Christ grew in his life. One commentator said of Simeon's Hope, he says, he speaks like one for whom the grave has lost its terror and the world its charm. This text highlights those waiting for purification to be brought into the fellowship of the Lord. Waiting for a savior, waiting for a purpose. And the only way to endure the painful valleys of this world is when we realize that we lose nothing when we gain Jesus. I forgive, ask for forgiveness that I know this but there's a country song whose chorus goes, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now. I don't apologize for the bad theology, I apologize that I know a country song. (laughs) But how painfully true is it that some of us take that idea and import it into our life? But how out of place is Simeon's hope in the midst of that? How often do we burden ourselves in our waiting by trying to apply a salvation in something else? We want problems solved, and then we can have peace. We want a spouse, and then we can rejoice. We want to summit that mountain peak, watch that graduation, or fund that retirement account, and then we can worship, and then we can say, I've seen it. Now I have peace. You see, the world offers peace if we wait, a carrot that you will never have. But it's only the gospel that offers peace while we wait because it is only the Lord who can bring this salvation. It is only the Lord who has revealed it in Jesus Christ. And when we see that, the terror of death loses its terror and the world its charm. This salvation which reveals itself in Jesus comes with such great joy that we look at all the vices and valleys of this world and we say, I don't care. Now your servant can depart in peace. We don't know when Simeon died, if he died the next day or if he died the next decade. But what we do know was what occupied his joy until, excuse me, until then. And that was the peace of knowing that God had acted and saved him in Jesus Christ Christ. The consolation of life in this broken world is that to have Jesus is to have everything. And brothers and sisters, this world does us a great service when it crushes our false hopes and impinges on our comforts so that we might see in stunning clarity that even the pain of this world is meant to point us to the grace of Jesus. Do we see this Jesus as worthy of? of it all. Are we adding clauses to Simeon's peace that will only disappoint? Or do we see this Savior and say, let your servant depart in peace for my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. In closing, Paul, so motivated by the same joy, says this in Philippians 3, 8-11. Indeed, I count everything as loss, In the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible I may attain resurrection from the dead. Let us look to this Jesus and experience this joy and give our lives to his worship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have presented yourself to us as Lord in Jesus Christ. That though you came humbly, you did not come subtly. Though you came robed in ordinary flesh, you came to do supernatural things so that you might save your people and bring all of those who need consolation, peace. Peace which brings us comfort. Peace which satisfies our longings peace found only in salvation by faith through Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.